Should legal scholars and academics take the arguments for and against secession seriously? Well, there are a few that think so, and I'll talk about them on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to sign up at McClanahanAcademy.com. It's free to do so. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do that. And you can buy courses there. You can keep this podcast free of charge by purchasing courses at McClanahan Academy. It's a win-win. You get great content. If you love this podcast, you'll love the classes over there. I've got over 20. Of course, my latest is Reading Thomas Jefferson, which if you're on my email list, you know I've extended that deal out just a little bit longer. So you can pick up that class for a discount. So make sure you're on that email list. Go to brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Get on my email list there. Just give me an email address there. I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook. And then you're on the email list and you get all the great coupons. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Tell people how much you enjoy thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. If you're going to rate the podcast, give it that five-star review. Also, leave a text review where you can. And if you're on YouTube, comment on it. If you're on YouTube, also click on that little super thanks button under the video. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. Or you can click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com or go to anchor.fm and throw a few pennies my way there. All right. Let's talk about the topic, and it is academic interest in secession. Now, I've said this before, that if this was 1990, no one would really be talking about this. Now, there were a few academic scholars that had mentioned secession in the 1980s. They had brought up the issue and the various debates around the issue. But really beginning in the 1990s, you had a one-man crusade to begin a discussion about secession. This was Don Livingston at Emory University. And Don actually held a conference on secession in the early 1990s that really no one attended. And by the late 1990s, more people had started thinking about this process. What is secession? What does it mean? Is it legal? Is it not legal? Dr. Livingston actually points to a book that changed his mind on the topic, and that is uh, Albert Taylor Bledsoe's Davis a Traitor. It was written as a defense of Jefferson Davis to be used in his trial for treason against the United States. There were some others, uh, but that one was considered to be the best, and it still is very, very good. In fact, I edited a version of that with uh, Mike Church uh, several years back. We did an annotated and edited, edited version of that particular book. So it's a fantastic resource if you want to understand secession and the constitutional arguments in favor of it. You see, that's the real issue. Is secession constitutional? If it's constitutional, then you can't say that it's treason or illegal. I mean, if it's if it's something the Constitution would allow, then it's not treason. It's not illegal. It's not, it's not something you're breaking the law doing. And so Davis actually went back to the founding period and tried to find a way that he could defend Davis. I'm sorry, Bledsoe went back to the founding period, tried to find a way that he could defend Davis based on the original understanding of the Constitution. And I think he did a fantastic job. One of my favorite chapters in that book is Webster versus Webster, where he, where he takes down Daniel Webster in his own words. Right? This is Webster in the 1830s. This is Webster in the 18-teens. He takes apart Daniel Webster in his own words 
And Daniel Webster, of course, at one time was very much a decentralist. He believed in nullification. He had taken part in the Hartford Convention, which, of course, was a secession convention. And so you have all of this very robust material being written in the aftermath of the war, the few years after the war, and then into the 19th century, late 19th century, you have people talking about secession. And then, of course, there was a reconciliation period. And essentially, in that period of time, what happened was historians had started getting involved in this process. And they basically just swept aside the issue of secession and said, no, nope, that was wrong. Uh, but uh, Southerners were brave men fighting for the cause in which they believed. Now, we know that all of the monuments that were going up in this period of time, when Southerners actually had the means to finally do this, in the 25-year anniversary, in the 50-year anniversary after the war. This is, of course, these monuments are going up in that time period. We always re recognize things at certain junctures in history. 25 years after the war is, wow, 1890. And that's when you're going to see a lot of monuments go up, the 1880s and 1890s. So it's not has nothing to do with Jim Crow, uh, because, of course, that was something that uh, was a political process. The monuments were not political. They were memorials as a monument is. Uh, and so then you have more monuments go up. Well, lo and behold, around the time of World War I. And why? Well, because that's the 50th anniversary of the war. And so you're going to start seeing monuments north and south. That's the, thing, that's the thing people don't realize about this. North and south. And some of these monuments, of course, would have pretty strong statements about the constitutionality of secession, about the cause of states' rights or independence and these kind of things. They would say it on the monuments. Now, that would be described as lost cause propaganda. But what these academic historians recently and legal scholars, this is the interesting part, legal scholars have started to recognize is that, wait a second here, the legal question never really was resolved. This is something that Don Livingston had pointed out for years. And of course, the Abbeville Institute, founded in 2002, was uh, the charge of that was to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition and including this idea of decentralization. Now, of course, the South wasn't alone in this. There were Northerners who proposed these very same things. In fact, did it first as early as 1794. But you had other organizations like the Second Vermont Republic. You had Kirkpatrick Sale uh, in the Middlebury Institute. Of course, you had secession organizations around the United States. Uh, but these, I bring up the Second Vermont Republic in the Middlebury Institute because Sale and Thomas Naylor, who was uh, the man who directed the Second Vermont Republic Secession Movement, were leftists. Now, Sale would say that he's conservative, and uh, but he, he grew up and was very much invested in leftist causes. So you have this, uh, this very interesting discussion taking place beginning in the 1990s. And then you have some legal scholars really start investigating this. And one of the more famous for legal scholars is Sanford Levinson, and around the early 2000s, he started looking into the issue. Is secession uh, constitutional? Is it? I mean, what, what is it? I mean, is it something we should even discuss as an academic uh, topic? I mean, is this something that lawyers should be interested in doing? And you started getting around the 2010s much more interest among legal scholars. And these are people in mainstream positions. These are mainstream academics. These are not people that um, are considered you know, to be on the right or uh, some other nonsense or these you know, fringe academics. These are people, prominent people in law schools, and, and uh, they're starting to look at secession 
in an academic way. And there are a couple of really interesting people in this process besides Levinson. One is Cynthia Nicoletti, uh, who now teaches law at UVA. Uh, and the other is Alison Lacroix, who is um, a professor, uh, a law professor. And she was actually on the, the President's Commission to reevaluate the Supreme Court. In 2010, she wrote a book on federalism. And I'll review that book uh, in a future podcast. But she wrote a book on federalism, and she's working on another book about the Constitution from the 18-teens up until, you know, just before the 1850s. Kind of this period of time when no one really focuses on. Of course, people like yours truly do that, and others have too. But remember, she's an academic historian, and so she doesn't think that any of this stuff has ever been done before. And she's not, she's not looking at things that have been done on the outside of that. But regardless, her book on uh, federalism actually focuses on Jack Green. And it's amazing. She comes to the conclusion, which she said that, you know, again, this, this kind of position has never really been discussed much. It had. But because academics haven't been talking about it, it seems like it hadn't, that the idea of nullification, of decentralization, federalism, these kind of things go back into the colonial period, which we know is true. We know Edmund Morgan, for example, in his book on the Stamp Act, and Edmund Morgan was establishment's establishment. I mean, this guy was a popular historian, but also an establishment historian. In his book on the Stamp Act, he entitled a chapter, Nullification. So we know that people knew about this stuff, but academic legal scholars hadn't really focused on much of it because they had essentially been bulldozed by the Lincoln myth. And that is one thing that I find very fascinating about Cynthia Nicoletti's book, uh, Secession on Trial. So if you have never, I've talked about this book on this podcast before, but she wrote a, a piece for balkanization, which I talked about the other day, that website. There was another article I, I mentioned. Um, but she wrote a piece for balkanization on secession. And one of her main points that she focuses on is the the lack of any kind of legal analysis in Salmon P. Chase's decision in Texas v. White. Essentially, what she says is that this is the worst cop-out in the history of cop-outs for this discussion of secession. In Texas v. White, Salmon P. Chase issues a ruling on secession in a paragraph that said it's unconstitutional. Now, what she misses in all that is that Chase actually doesn't say it's unconstitutional. He says it's unconstitutional for a state to unilaterally leave the Union. Unilaterally leave the Union. They can't do that. He does say that it's constitutional if the Congress boots a state out of the Union, and he does that in defense of military reconstruction. So a state can't do it themselves, but if Congress wants to do it and boot a state out of the Union, like in military reconstruction, that's okay. It's okay for a state to be booted out by the central government because we've done that in military reconstruction, you see? So all of that is justified and all of that is perfectly legal. It's illegal for a state to do it themselves. And what Nicoletti points out is that this is just simply regurgitating Lincoln in his inaugural address, first inaugural address. And she says this was a political, not a legal solution to all this. And her conclusion in this book is that, you know, it was probably too dangerous to say that secession was in any way legal. It was also perhaps too dangerous to say it was unconstitutional in the, in the, uh, in the period of time, 1869, when the decision was issued. Because the wounds of the war were so real at that point. It had only been four years since the end of the war. 
And so this entire book, of course, is dedicated to the arguments for and against Davis. And the book is interesting because she basically agrees with Davis's defense team. She doesn't really come out and say it. Um, and she apologizes in the introduction of the book for saying that, well, uh, some of these arguments are pretty strong arguments. Uh, she has to apologize for that because if you say that secession, of course, is something that's constitutional, well, that may not get you a job. Or if that Davis's positions are cogent and that the arguments are pretty sound, well, maybe that won't get you a job. Now, again, the tide has turned a little bit on this particular issue. You have a lot more people talking about secession in ways that would be would have been unimaginable in the 1970s or 80s or even really into the 1990s when Don Livingston started doing this. But we know, for example, you had the Baltic states leave the Soviet Union. We know that we had the breakup of the Soviet Union. We know we've had other secession movements in history. And so how all that works out and how these things happen, and of course how that relates to the United States history and how that relates to Europe and how that relates to Canada and other things. And so uh, back in October, there was actually a, a, an academic online conference on this issue with uh, Sandy Levinson and some of these scholars, LaCroix and Cynthia Nicoletti, were on this panel. And they had some really interesting things to say about this. Uh, and, and Nicoletti published her remarks, again, at Balkanization. And I want to highlight a couple of things um, in this essay because, look, if you've got mainstream academics talking about this now and taking seriously the arguments for secession, I think this is going to be a bigger issue in the future. Now, all of them would, would, would bash the South. They all think the South's position was immoral. But LaCroix and, and Nicoletti don't necessarily say that. Now, some of the others do on this panel. When I watched the panel, um, some of the others did. But they didn't. And it's not that I think they believe in the Southern cause. Don't get me wrong. I don't think they do at all. But they actually take seriously the arguments, and they do it in a way that's detached from the moral questions, which is what Livingston has been doing for a long period of time. I think my greatest disappointment in this uh, worship of Levinson's now interest in secession is that there were other people that had been doing this long before Levinson started getting involved in it and started looking at this. Uh, Levinson actually published a book in 2016 of collected essays on the topic of secession. Um, and it's, it's an interesting book. Uh, but I, I think, that, again, that it, the tragedy is that there are people who are good academics who were talking about this before and because of our political climate have been ignored. And that's the real, again, the real tragedy of all of this. So she writes in here, um, she says, the refusal to take secession arguments seriously has been of long-standing duration. She says, in this essay, I want to reflect a little on the intersection between the strictly legal arguments about secession and the ways in which Americans treated those arguments in the aftermath of the Civil War. If the arguments for and against the existence of a state's right to secede from the Union did not admit of a clear answer, one would be hard-pressed to discern that murkiness from public discussion of the question in the late 19th century. Both Unionists and ex-Confederates were so confident in their views 
that they hardly acknowledged the existence, let alone the persuasiveness, of counterarguments. It's as if they didn't exist. Now, I would say that's not necessarily true. I think that there's an issue here with that. Bledsoe's book recognized the other arguments. And I think Southerners recognized the arguments that Lincoln had made. That they're, they were just kind of silly. And so Confederates, ex-Confederates did know the other side and they did acknowledge the other side. In fact, um, you know, she even points out Alexander Stevens' book, which is a, a discourse on secession. He's acknowledging the other arguments. I think Unionists didn't acknowledge the other side. But I think Confederates certainly did because they had to refute them over and over again because they had to prove their point. In their mind, they had to prove their point. The thing about Jefferson Davis, she points out Jefferson Davis's book, Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government. She says it's real disappointment in this essay and in her comments. But Davis's cogency from the time that he wrote that book to to what he said before the war is tremendous. Davis never deviated in his arguments. He was cogent from the 1850s into the 1880s. For 30 years, he said the exact same thing. It's why when she says his book seems to be a disappointment, Davis didn't have, I mean, he couldn't say anything new on the topic that he didn't say before. And what I think she's looking for in that as well, I mean, he didn't really go into the inner workings of the Confederacy too much. He spent his time on secession. The man was rotting in a prison for years, and it was the core of the Confederacy. This belief in independence and secession, it was the core of it. If that's, if we're able to do that, that the entire cause is vindicated no matter what you think, about the reasons why they seceded or didn't secede or whatever. The whole cause is then vindicated because secession would be vindicated. That's why he spent so much time on it. You had to vindicate the cause. And again, if you've studied Davis, you know that what he says in 1850 and uh, the, during the speech in the Compromise of 1850 and what he says during the 1850s itself, uh, of course, he was you know in the Pierce cabinet for a time, but he comes back to the Senate. What he says there. It's all very cogent and cohesive with what he's saying in the 1880s when he writes his uh, two-volume work on the Confederacy. She says, It's certainly no secret that in the United States the question of secession's legality has always been politically inflected. This is true. I mean, it's, it's, it's used since 1794 when Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King approached John Taylor of Caroline about it. It's always been a political question. The reason they didn't want to be in the Union anymore in 1794 is because they thought they were being abused by the South. And John Taylor of Caroline was, of course, shocked by this. But these two men said, you know, look, we don't need this thing. How about, how about just breaking up the Union now? This is a period of time that a lot of these scholars miss. Um, and I, I think that LaCroix, who, who talked about uh, the... the uh, Hartford Convention in this particular discussion of federalism and secession and these kind of things. She says, look, I mean, we, we, we're missing this. One thing that she brings up is Chisholm v. Georgia. And she's, it, I think she misses, and I, I haven't, when she brings up Chisholm v. Georgia, which is a very important Supreme Court decision, and this idea of sovereignty and what that means, they all miss the reaction to it, which was the 11th Amendment. The founding generation defined state sovereignty with the 11th Amendment. It is one of the most important amendments of the Constitution. The 10th and 11th Amendments work together. Actually, the 9th through the 11th all work together to reemphasize that we have a federal republic, a republic of republics. It's important to get that. 
a republic of republics. We have a federal republic. And so that is very important. And one thing these, uh, these scholars also miss, I think, in their evaluation of these things, is the importance of conventions, the voice of the people. And Levinson, in his discussions, points out, you know, the people are important and goes back to the people. But the people of what? The people of the states, not this people in the aggregate. Even Levinson said John Jay's Federalist Number 2 is a bunch of garbage because Jay was trying to create something that didn't exist, and that was an American nation. So I find all of this fascinating that these prominent legal scholars are saying these things. And look, when, um, when I've talked about this before, I think what, what legal scholars have finally started to realize is that the arguments of the South were so strong that they were based so much on history and accurately based on history that they have to start acknowledging that's the truth, that the Confederate position, or at least the decentralist position, was actually the right position, the Jeffersonian position, which is really what it is. The Jeffersonian position was actually the correct position, that they have to start looking at the 14th Amendment as the pivot. They've got to start going beyond, because if we, if we rely on the original Constitution, well, then all of their nationalist arguments are incorrect. It completely destroys Lincolnian America. So what they have to do is say, the 14th Amendment changes everything. The 14th Amendment changes everything. We can talk about all these things theoretically in this period of time, but all of that goes away in 1868 when the 14th Amendment is ratified. That's the key. It's why they're starting to do all this, you see. They've all understood now, I think, well, all. I think a lot of them are understanding that Southern arguments in 1861 were the stronger arguments legally. They were the stronger arguments in this particular battle over you know, was secession legal or not. They're stronger. She says, uh, it was never purely an academic question that could be divorced from its context as a pro-slavery argument. But of course, you can. You can. Uh, you can divorce it because Northerners used it forever. Uh, as an argument to get out. I mean, Rufus King, Oliver Ellsworth, 1794. You have the Essex Junto. And I think this is where, again, Nicoletti's view on secession is a little bit short-sighted. They need to do a little more work on this, in other words. They need to listen to people like yours truly, who also is an academic, by the way. But I just don't publish in all their journals. So, and, and Don Livingston, who doesn't publish in all of their journals. See, they're short sighted. This is the problem with the academy. It's an echo chamber. They get their journals and they write in their own journals and they think that they pat each other on the back. Even this conference is about, you know, like 10, 15 people that patting each other on the back and how great they are and all these things they've come up with. They're not even looking outside of that to see people have been talking about this for years, longer than they have, and I think better than they do at times. Uh, but regardless, uh, they just want to pat themselves on the back. She says, this is not to say that secessionist arguments have no content or that they could not, in theory, be used to advance local self-determination as a morally neutral principle. But it is true that, the Paul, that a Paul hangs over the secession question that it's hard to evaluate the strength of an argument without thinking about the uses to which that argument should be put. It's easy to see in hindsight that slaveholders were attracted to secession arguments because of their usefulness in spite of their insistence that the arguments themselves had independent merit. They may well have had independent merit, but it was rare, though not impossible, to find abolitionists who believed strongly in states' rights and secessionist ideology. It's not rare, 
the most important abolitionist in the <laughs> in Massachusetts, William Lloyd Garrison, advocated secession. This is where Levinson kind of smacked her down a little bit. Again, Nicoletti is short-sighted. She, they, they get the Confederacy on the brain, and they can't go beyond that. Davis himself pointed out that Northerners were doing this, right? So it's not Southerners weren't living in a vacuum. The arguments that they're putting forward, they, you know, other people had done these things before, had said these things before in the North, in the North. She said, I don't think there's a very clear answer to the question of secession's legality. Well, there is a very clear answer to it. It's called uh, reserved powers. What are the state's reserved powers? If it's not explicitly denied by the Constitution, the state has reserved powers. This is exactly how the Constitution was sold to the states. It's a very easy question, really, when you think about it. There's a reason why fa the founding generation, North and South, thought it was entirely possible and legal. They didn't think it was illegal. Jefferson never said it was illegal. He just said it wasn't wise, but he never said it was illegal. There's a reason why Northerners, I mean, Timothy Pickering, for example, in the Essex Junto, was at one time the Secretary of State, right? There's a reason why these people think that secession is entirely legal, because it was, because of reserved powers. That's the whole argument. That's the whole point. The Constitution itself does not speak of per uh, perpetuity or impermanence, it does not say whether the union is one made by the states or the people as an undifferentiated whole. Well, it does that. It says that, actually, in Article 7, between the states are ratifying the same. So, I mean, there's a lot in this, in this essay, that she just gets wrong. And that's a real, a real problem with this particular essay or positions. In the 1860s, both secessionists and perpetual unionists relied on structural inferences and historical circumstances to make their cases for and against secession. The founders themselves left the question alone, either because they did not perceive the secession of one group of states organized by region to present a pressing problem, or because they hoped to avoid the question through strategic silence. But that's, it's reserved powers. They all thought it was possible. They all thought it was possible. If they didn't, you wouldn't have had the founding members of the founding generation talking about it. They all thought it was legal and possible because of reserved powers of the states. It's the whole argument of the Kentucky Resolutions, the Virginia Resolutions. It's the reserved powers of the states. It's Nathaniel Macon saying nullification is stupid, just secede. It's the Essex Junto pursuing secession in 1794, before they were Essex Junto. But, uh, and then again after Jefferson's election, or during Jefferson's election, then again after the Louisiana Purchase, then again, you get it in the Hartford Convention. This is all part of this greater conversation about the value of union. The fact that Edmund Randolph in the Virginia Convention, who thought that the Constitution was a bad document, but yet he was going to agree to it because he did not think the states could act independently, shows you that the real threat was secession to him. Elizabeth Varon, who also is at Virginia with Nicoletti, is right on with this, that the, 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 the threat of disunion was a real strong point to make because they all thought it could happen. They didn't think it was illegal. They thought it could happen. So, I mean, she gets into some things here where she says uh, that uh, people are confident in their positions. And I don't think that there's any argument that the anti-secession people can make 
that is based on any kind of historical reality. They fabricate these things, and they uh, they simply pull, they cherry pick some things out of Lincoln. They basically have to go to Lincoln. They have to go to Lincoln. It's the real issue here. They can't really find anything in the founding period that would show anti-secession sentiment or that secession was illegal. So they have to go to Lincoln. Lincoln makes a great political discovery. He ha- they have to go to Lincoln. Lincoln is not a founding father, though. Lincoln is Lincoln. And that's where the, the anti-secession arguments come from. They were making this stuff up. She says, The court rendered the opinion it had to in Texas v. White, which is not to say that the justices were insincere in endorsing a unionist theory that accorded with the outcome of the Civil War. The justices were all unionists, and Alabamian John A. Campbell had left the court in April 1861. After living through four years of Civil War, the members of the court were surely themselves convinced of the correctness of the theory of perpetual union. Their own thinking on the question may have been reflexive and deeply ingrained by that point, but it is nonetheless true that the court had not treated the question very seriously or admitted that there, were any, there was any logical heft of secessionist theory. She's right about that. She says, if Texas v. White's resolution of the secession question was unsatisfying, now she says, so was the analysis provided in the lost cause literature of the late 19th century, but it's not. Again, she gets into, she, she kind of knocks that down, and I think she has to do that. Uh, she never mentions Bledsoe. In her book, she talks about Bledsoe twice. Um, once to kind of say, well, this thing was written, and Bledsoe hoped it would be used, but she never weighs the argument. She says, well, Bledsoe had gone back to the founding fathers, and uh, he had talked about these things, but uh, he kind of, you know, said that this was, he was very proud that Davis, you know, this was going to be the best book written on this, you know, a little hubris there. But she never weighs the arguments because that's not the point of the book, but she forgets about it in this essay. It was, and still is, the best defense, legal defense of secession that there was. And Bledsoe was an attorney. He was writing it like a legal scholar. He was a colleague of Abraham Lincoln at one point. Bledsoe was a, a legal scholar at one time. Now she calls him a mathematics professor, which he was that too. But he was also a legal scholar. He was an attorney. She says, What is perhaps most interesting about post-war discussion of secession is that what both sides admitted. It cost too much for the Supreme Court to admit that the question had been settled through violence or that it was even open to dispute. It also cost too much for the lost causers to admit that it was a close, a close question. I should say closed. There was no sense that this was an argument with two sides that reasonable people could disagree about the question. Counter-arguments were hardly presented, and when they were, they were not to be taken seriously. Because of the strange phenomenon, secession has gone mostly unexamined since the heyday of lost cause writing, probably because serious analysis risks unraveling the parallel assumption shared by both sides, that the conclusion was so clear that argument was unnecessary. War never settles a question. Even Jefferson said this. War never settles a legal question. The legal question is still open. And uh, that's something that, I mean, she, she says that, you know, lost cause writing, um, people were just dismissing stuff. I think you can dismiss the, the uh, anti-secessionist arguments pretty easily in terms of from a legal standpoint. Uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson, as much as you like or dislike Woodrow Wilson, essentially said Confederates were right in law, but they were wrong in, in history, right? They were, they were on the wrong side, the wrong moral side of this, but they were right in law, and this is something that's true. So 
This is a really interesting discussion to have. Um, and she says that uh, her, her final statement is, if we admit that the legal question doesn't have a clear answer, then perhaps its resolution should have been in, the, in a court and not on the battlefield. I mean, this is a pretty strong statement to make from an academic historian, an academic legal scholar, to say that meh, Lincoln's position wasn't necessarily conclusive and the war wasn't necessarily conclusive. This is a bigger question that needs to be adjudicated in some other way. And so simply talking about it in the legal profession is important to do. And that's what I find fascinating about all of this now. And again, I think some of these people miss important parts of this. And these are not, I mean, these are not uh, stupid people. They're bright people, but I don't think they have, they fully grasp all the historical nuances of these things. And um, that the pro-secession position was stronger in history than the anti-secession position. All right. So I wanted to cover that because I found that discussion, you know, again, this, this conference on secession, very fascinating that people are doing this in the academic world um, because, you know, you never would have thought that would have happened even, you know, 30 years ago. It wouldn't have happened. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.